Well, good morning. Welcome to Cape Bible Chapel. Thanks for braving the weather, the cold and the ice. I'm glad you're here. Since you're here, let's study our Bible together. Please go ahead and grab yours, open your Bible app, however you're going to get there. Meet me in Luke chapter 4. Today we're going to look at verses 31 to 41. While you're looking there, I want you to take a look at this slide up here. That phrase familiar to you at all? Ever seen that one? If you identify with the baby boomer generation, if you're from the rock and roll era, you're born in that post-World War II time period, you're probably aware of this phrase because it was birthed during your generation. And then if you were born any time after the boomers, you've probably done more than recognize this phrase. You've grown up kind of immersed in it. Maybe you've even embraced it. We're going to talk about authority today. Specifically, as it says in the outline on your bulletin there, we're going to talk about the authority of Jesus Christ because now there's a lot of people in this world who question God's authority. This advice to question authority, supposedly it originated with a psychologist named Timothy O'Leary. And he coined this phrase during the late 1960s as part of his big stand against the United States' involvement in the Vietnam War. And so that, you know, created a lot of conflict. And then right after that, there was the Nixon presidency and then the Watergate scandal. And all of a sudden, question authority became a rallying cry. Now initially, and I have no real way of knowing if this is true or not, I never met Timothy O'Leary, but sources say that he really had good intentions to go along with this advice. His idea was to encourage people to avoid any false appeals to authority. He wanted to combat people who were on a power trip and, and were claiming authority that they didn't have. I don't know if that's accurate or not. I do know it's accurate. I read some Timothy O'Leary this week. He thought it was a good idea for people to do a lot of drugs. That would help you cope with life's issues. So I don't know how much stock we can put in the things that Timothy O'Leary says, but, but we can see the results of his advice. We know what's happened to generations of people since questioned authority became standard operating procedure. It's, it's grown, it's spread like cancer. That movement has fallen into the hands of broken people living in this fallen world, and now there's just widespread dysfunction all around us. And so you have one sinful teacher or coach or politician or police officer, and they assume too much authority. They abuse their position, and they ruin it for everybody because now we question authority all around us. And this has led many, many people to question God's authority. So we're going to study God's Word together today because it is so clear. We're going to see the purpose that authority is supposed to assume in our lives. We're going to see what our correct response to property authority is. And hopefully we're going to learn how to apply that response. Because in God's design, authority is really supposed to be a very good thing. It's supposed to be a very helpful thing. If we get biblical authority, if we understand that God is sovereign over everything, that's really functional in our lives. Because if we start questioning God's authority, that, that leads to some really shaky worldviews. Worldviews where there's lots of scenarios and lots of variables that are left up to chance. Or even worse, they're left up to us. They're left up to fallen people to determine the outcome. And we can see where that's gotten us, right? There's supposed to be a clear purpose for authority. Now probably one of the easiest examples to reference, I think almost everybody can grasp, is the idea of a drill sergeant. You've served in the military. God bless you. Thank you. You know firsthand the experience of encountering a powerful authority in your life. 
But if, like me, you haven't served, you've probably seen a movie or something where a drill sergeant instructs the new recruits on how to obey the rules. And I was looking for some video clips. I wanted to show one today to kind of help us grasp the impact of that situation, but we're in church. And every clip I wanted to use had some really colorful language in it, you know, so it would have been like a minute and a half of a guy with veins bulging out of his neck and just bleep, 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 bleep. So we're not going to watch a clip together today. We're going to have to pass on that. We can still understand the purpose behind any branch of the military putting a drill sergeant in charge of a bunch of new recruits because he's there to teach them one huge fundamental lesson. Here it is. You ready? When someone with real authority speaks, we're supposed to listen and obey immediately. One of the clips that I wanted to show had this great line where the drill sergeant said, hey, after these recruits make it through basic training, when I say jump, their response is going to be, how high? Not why, not you can't make me, not why don't you jump, how high? And then if they follow that question up by jumping that high, then they're going to prove they got it. They understand the proper response to authority. I want to show us in this passage today that the Bible teaches this important concept really clearly. Actually, throughout the Gospel of Luke, Luke makes this point over and over again. Jesus is in authority. Jesus is God. Because Luke's writing primarily to a non-Jewish audience. They didn't have a lot of Jesus background. So he's making this point many, many times because they're skeptical. The correct response to Jesus' authority should be to immediately obey him. Supposed to submit to him. I know that's a loaded word, submission. But it's important because it indicates we should yield any power or authority that we have attained or that we think we have and just do what God says. And we should do it without grumbling or complaining or questioning his authority. So in this passage today, Luke's going to walk us through a Sabbath day with Jesus, and we're going to see three things. Jesus teaches with authority, he casts out demons with authority, and he heals the sick with authority. So let's jump in. Join me there, and we'll read Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 32. And Jesus came down to Capernaum, the city of Galilee. He was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were amazed at his teaching. Why? For his message was with authority. And we've got to understand, until Jesus showed up and started teaching, What folks got at the synagogue was something like what we get when we come to church every week. Because the reality is, I'll stand up here every week and say things like, I believe this is what this passage means. I think this is the correct interpretation. Now, I'm a Christ follower. I have the Holy Spirit in me to lead me and guide me. I have the authority that God has given me. I went to a really good seminary. I got a lot of really thick books back in my office. I study, I pray, and still, all I'm doing is standing up here and taking my best shot at this. I'm just a man. I have the authority that God gives me, but I don't have the authority that Jesus had. Jesus was God. So there should be no question about why I get nervous and sweat every week when I preach God's Word, because it's the greatest story ever told, and I don't want to mess it up because I'm human the authority God gives me, but Jesus is God. He has his authority. Well, the rabbis back in the synagogue, they would have had to teach like I do. 
They had the authority God gave them. So they didn't have the ability to say, with God's authority, here's what this scripture means. I'm sure they studied. I'm sure they offered their prayerful thoughts. They shared what they felt God was leading them to. They probably quoted other rabbis. Well, Rabbi Schwartzman says this means such and such. But do we understand that Jesus did it differently? When Jesus sat down to teach in the synagogue, he taught differently. And the reason was because of his authority. I mentioned we should all read the Sermon on the Mount this past week. I hope you took me up on it. Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. Jesus doesn't say things like, well, if you're poor in spirit or gentle or merciful, then you should consider yourself blessed. No. He said we are blessed when we are those things. And he said it with God's authority because he's God. At least nine times in that passage, and many more he implies it, but at least nine times he says the actual words, you have heard it said in the law, but I say, because he's Jesus. He taught differently. He taught with authority, and it was easily recognizable. It was night and day different from the way that the rabbis taught. And this teaching ministry, this preaching of God's Word to people was huge for Jesus. It was a monumental part of why Jesus came to be God with us. We saw this last week in verses 18 and 19. Do you remember what it said? Jesus came to preach the gospel to the poor, to proclaim the release of captives, to proclaim the favorable of the year of the Lord. What's he doing? He's preaching. He came to preach and teach, and he did it with authority. Now, there should be a huge application for us in this. And I would hope for all Christ-following churches, but I don't believe every church is applying this lesson. In his ministry, Jesus emphasized this preaching of God's Word. And even though it can't be done with the same authority he had, that's still what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to preach God's Word. But in every era since then, there have been these attempts to diminish the importance of preaching God's Word. Now, there are a couple reasons for sure. And one of them is that we have a real enemy in Satan who knows that there's power in the name of Jesus. He knows there's power in the Word of God to lead sinful people to Jesus for salvation. There's power to build up and equip folks in local churches. And so Satan doesn't like that. He didn't want to see a bunch of churches opening up the Bible and teaching God's Word. I get that. But we have other enemies too because we're going to battle with our own flesh and we're going to battle with this fallen world. And so what we see now, sadly, is many, many churches preaching messages that are designed to not offend people. Preach messages to help people feel good about themselves. So you go to a church and you have to endure a six-part sermon series on healthy habits for happy living or something like that. Best J. Vernon McGee quote ever is when he said he despised that churches had begun preaching sermonettes for Christianettes. They're light sermons for immature people. That's teaching where there's no mention of the instruction that God gives in the Bible. There's very little mention of God at all. Here in Luke, we see the opposite of that. We see Jesus emphasizing the importance of preaching and teaching the Word of God, so we need to do that for sure. And there's a second application challenge that's kind of tied to that fact that we need to always be about teaching God's Word, and it's this. 
if all we do is listen to the teaching and take some notes and nod our heads and never act on the things that we learn, we never actually obey the teaching, we never submit to God's authority, then that's like God telling us to jump and we nod our heads and we raise our hands and we say, yes, God, we should be jumpers, but we never leave the ground. We're not truly obeying, we're agreeing, but we're not submitting. The point of the authority, the point of hearing the teaching is to obey. Listen to me, there's no scenario at all that puts a Christ follower on the path of sanctification, of becoming more Christ-like, that would include listening to a sermon, or reading the Bible, or studying for understanding alone for our own knowledge alone, without also doing what it says. The Apostle James nails this. Absolutely no wiggle room in James chapter 1 and verse 22. He instructs us, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. If we say we study the Bible, if we say we love God's word, we love it for spiritual growth, but we never jump. We don't worship. Instead, we grumble and complain. We don't evangelize. Instead, we wonder why the world has fallen apart around us. We don't make disciples, but we do compare. We lament the fact that other Christians are so immature, they don't study as much as we do. We don't serve. We nod our heads when we hear a sermon about serving. But then we say things like, but, but I've already done my part. I've already served in the nursery. I've already served as a greeter. It's somebody else's turn to serve. Yes, somebody else does need to serve. But do we understand their serving's not our business? We're supposed to obey and submit to the authority of God. When God tells us to jump, we can get some clarification. We can ask how high. How high did you want me to jump, God? That high? Whew. That seems impossible, but you're the one who says, so I guess I'm going to give it a shot. And we jump, and God carries us beyond where we're going to go. If we know what God's Word tells us to do, we're not supposed to live lives of questioning His authority. Jesus shows His authority in His teaching, and we're supposed to obey, period. Okay, point number two on your outline. Jesus cast out demons with authority. Now, this is going to be an interesting read. Look at Luke chapter 4. This is verses 33 to 37 with me. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Let us alone! What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing him any harm. And amazement came upon them all, and they began talking with one another, saying, What is this message? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him was spreading into every locality in the surrounding district. And I love this passage because it correlates 
Scripture so clearly. Just last week, what did Jesus say he'd come to do? He's going to set free the oppressed. And here, it's exactly what he does. Great example. And part of this message is just a little funny to me. And because of the way God has wired me, I find some things funny and other people don't. I get it. But, but this passage makes me chuckle. And so let me tell you why. Throughout Jesus' public ministry, there's always this really high level of confusion about who he is, right? His own family thinks that he's crazy. The disciples, for sure, they just don't know. The Pharisees think he's demon-possessed. The unbelieving crowds follow him around, and they want him to be a miracle machine. They want him to multiply the breads and the loaves. There's one group in the New Testament that always gets it right, and it's the demons. They nail it every time. Every time we see a demon, they're like, we know who you are, Jesus. You're the Holy One of God. You're the Son of God. And so in these verses, Luke is going to show us that Jesus has this amazing power and authority over these demons. He can cast out these evil spirits. Now, if you remember, we had a discussion along these lines about a month or so ago, right before Christmas, when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. They're at the beginning of chapter 4. And we determined then Satan's real. But we shouldn't give him too much credit. We also shouldn't take him lightly. He's real, but he's not God. He's nowhere near that powerful. Well, here in verse 33, Jesus runs into a demon-possessed man. And so we learn in this passage today, they're demons. But the same rules apply here as they did with Satan. Demons are real, but they're not more powerful than God. So we shouldn't elevate them above where they are in Scripture. We also shouldn't pretend they don't exist. But dealing with this passage, let's be honest, it brings up some questions. And so let's try and address them practically. Because when we read the Gospel accounts, you recognize there's a lot of mention of demons. And the question becomes, is that normal? Why are there so many demons in the Gospels? Well, there's a good reason that we're going to see a lot of evil spirits when we're studying about the life of Jesus Christ. In the four Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, what we're seeing is the accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, and it is so exceptionally apparent as we study that that the kingdom of God is at hand in the life of Jesus. And so what happens then? Satan goes on the offensive, right? And he wants to bring his A game. He's not leaving anything in the bag, and so he's rolling out these demons to oppose the kingdom of God. Demons are fallen angels like Satan. They're created things. They've just chosen to join Satan's team. And so they come out of the woodwork when this kingdom of God is at hand because they seek to destroy and pervert and lie just like Satan does. And so they get busy when Jesus shows up, and that's why we see them all over the Gospels. Demons are real. Now they have limited power like Satan. The only Authority they have is authority that's granted to them by God for a short period of time, and the demons get this. They know it. That's the reason these evil spirits and these demons submit to Jesus. They truly understand his authority. They're the one group that always immediately obeys Jesus. So we see these accounts of unclean spirits and 
talk about demon oppression and demon possession because in the Gospels, Satan and his buddies know they're entering into this battle to the death. And they know Jesus is going to win, but they're still going to give it everything they've got. Now, practically, demons will possess people who don't know Jesus. Demons can oppress Christ followers. They can't possess them because Christ followers truly are filled with the Holy Spirit. But, but demons will still try to drag Christ followers down. I think we understand this. So there's lots of demons surrounding the work of Jesus in the Gospels. Well, then that leads to a follow-up question. Why don't we see them around all over the place today? We know that demons are real. Should it be a regular occurrence to run into one? I think the heart of that question is, you know, should, should our life be more like Ghostbusters where you see demons flying around all over the place? And I'm going to say the answer is no. By my count, outside of the four Gospels, you only see four references to demons in the rest of God's Word. That's a pretty long timeline with only four recorded instances. Two are in the First Testament. Saul gets an evil spirit in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 14. And then there's some deceiving spirits in the mouth of Ahab's prophets in 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 22 and 23. Just twice in the First Testament. Then in the New Testament, twice more. We see demons in Luke's sequel, the book of Acts. There's a Philippian servant girl, and she has a spirit in Acts chapter 16, verse 16. And then there's the seven sons of Eskiva. It's like a Jewish exorcist. They run into a demon in Acts chapter 19. That's it, just four. The vast majority of demons we encounter in God's Word, we're going to see in the Gospels. And that's when they show up as a direct attack on the ministry of Jesus. So I don't think we should obsess over the fact that there are demons in the Bible. They're real. We should believe in them. We should remember they always understand Jesus and His authority. They always know they are defeated by Jesus. So instead of us getting freaked out, and focusing on demons, let's fix our eyes on Jesus. In this passage, Jesus doesn't have to do anything weird, does he? He doesn't say some chant or rub any beads. He simply commands the demons to come out, and they obey. Jesus says jump. They don't even ask how high. They just, <laughs> they just start jumping. They obey just like that. Because the demons believe in God. And James chapter 2 and verse 19 says they shudder because they know they're under his judgment. Now this may be the weirdest thing I've ever said in my life, and that's saying something. So I'm glad some of you guys are taking notes. But listen to me on this. These demons in the gospel, they're pretty good role models. They're pretty good role models of what obedience and submission to God is supposed to look like. Immediate. Isn't that right? It's weird, but it's right. The demons know that Jesus is God, and they immediately obey him. They immediately submit to his authority. So for sure, that's something to apply. We should seek to obey God's authority that same way. But here's another important application point. Since we're in this passage, I don't want to miss it. We need to take demon oppression, demon possession seriously, and then we need to know what to do if we would encounter one. Because we should never think that we're going to go all Ghostbusters if we encounter a demon and try and fight it on our own and expect that to work. 
Listen, if you don't know Jesus, you can't even call on his name and expect that to work. That's actually what happened in Acts chapter 19 with these seven sons of the Sceva. Look at this account with me up on the screen. Acts chapter 19, verses 13 to 16. In the context here, the apostle Paul was being used mightily by God to heal disease and to cast out demons. And so some guys looked at that and they thought, that's pretty cool. I want to try that too. I want to try that Ghostbusters thing without knowing Jesus. Look what happens in this account. Some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, get this, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this, and, and this is going to give you a little chill. The evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus. I know about Paul. Who are you? The man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Don't try this at home. Here's the application. If you don't know Jesus, even if you do know Jesus, don't mess around with demons or anything like it. Occult practices, fortune-telling, Ouija board seances, don't do it. Why would you go around looking for confrontations with demons? They're real. But here's the truth. If you're a Christ follower and you do encounter someone who is demon-possessed or demon-oppressed, the thing that that demon cannot stand up to, listen to me, cannot stand up to is the strong name of Jesus Christ. They know. They know they've already lost. They submit to his authority. If you're a Christ follower, then you have the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of you, and you can use that power and tell the demon to leave. Now, I would do it the way the archangel Michael does in Jude, verse 9. It's a really good passage for instruction because even though Michael is, you know, an angel, he didn't try to fight Satan off by himself. What does he say? Look here at Jude 9. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against Satan a railing judgment. Look what he said. The Lord rebuke you. We can do that. I would never go up to a demon and say, I, James Green, rebuke you. That's goofy. But I would say, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ rebukes you. The Lord rebukes you. Demons are powerful. We don't want to mess with them. One demon-possessed guy takes out seven guys here in Acts chapter 19. They can be scary for us, but hear me, we shouldn't live in fear. We don't have to. Because what does the Bible teach us? Look at 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4. This is totally in context. You are from God, little children, and you have overcome them. He's talking about the Antichrist. He's talking about these evil spirits. You've overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. There's your application. The power to overcome demons is not in us. It's in God through Jesus Christ and his indwelling Holy Spirit that's in us. 
So Jesus teaches with authority. He casts out demons with authority. Last point, number three on your outline. We're going to see that Jesus also heals the sick with authority. Verses 38 to 41 with me. Jesus got up, he left the synagogue, he entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. Standing over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And she immediately got up and waited on them. While the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to Jesus. And laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. Demons also were coming out of many, shouting, You're the Son of God! See, they always get it. But rebuking them, he wouldn't allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ. This this is phenomenal, and I love this. Luke is recording Jesus exercising his authority on this Sabbath day, and Jesus leaves the synagogue, and he goes over to Peter's house. Simon is Peter. Because Peter's house kind of became base camp for Jesus. He was rejected in Nazareth by his own people, so Capernaum kind of becomes Jesus' adopted hometown. And Peter's house is at the center of this ministry. And Peter is a married guy. We know this from context because he had a mother-in-law. That's how you come to have a mother-in-law, by getting married. You probably wouldn't just sign up to have one without the benefits of having a wife. That's all I'm going to say about that. Because I've never had a single guy come up to me and say, man, what I'm really looking for is a mother-in-law. I said I was going to leave it alone, and I didn't, but <laughs> I love my mother-in-law. I just know that. But, but Peter's mother-in-law was really, really sick, right? This is Luke, the physician, recording this. And when it says that she has a high fever, most likely it means, most likely because I don't have God's authority, I don't know, but most likely it means she has a fever that won't break, and it's serious. She could die from it. Now, is this a problem for Jesus? No. Because he has the authority to heal the sick. So much in the same way that he rebuked the demons, he walks over and he rebukes this fever. And Peter's mother-in-law is miraculously healed. Now this is a miracle on a lot of levels. We read the Bible too fast sometimes and we miss some things we're supposed to catch. It's amazing enough that Jesus can rebuke sickness. That's incredible. But just think about what happens when you're sick, right? If you have a high fever today, God works through doctors and medicine. So you go to the doctor and you get some medicine. And what happens? You start to get better. But do you immediately get better as soon as you take the the medicine? Do you start to take the medicine? Do you just jump up and feel 100% and start making dinner? No. We go through a process. When Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, she immediately gets up. That's what rebuking sickness does. And she starts to serve. It's, It's a miracle. And it's important to this story because Peter's mother-in-law is supposed to be our role model here. She's a better role model than demons because she's just a mother-in-law. I said I was going to leave it alone. (laughs) She understands authority. She understands the proper response to God's authority. She's healed. What happens? She immediately gets up and engages. Now we know the Word of God spreads fast. And so in verse 40... After the sun sets on the Sabbath, it would then be okay to carry people to Jesus. You couldn't do it before dark because that would be like work. But as soon as it gets dark, what do they do? They start carrying people to Jesus. These patients start piling up. It becomes a long, 
long day for Jesus. We're going to see this in the passage next week. He needs a break after this. But just think practically, if you had a loved one who was sick, or you knew somebody who had a disease and you love them, and you know what Jesus is doing over at Peter's house, isn't that what you'd do? You'd go get your loved one and you'd pick them up and you'd carry them. And you'd say, hey, did you hear Jesus is over at Peter's house and he's healing people? Let's go. And Jesus heals people. And he casts out demons because he has the authority to do it. And if you'll notice, he rebukes the demons because they always get it right. They're loudly describing him to be the Son of God. Why does he want him to be quiet? Because Jesus didn't come to this earth to have demons recognize him as the Messiah. He came so that we would. He wants the demons to be quiet because he wants us as people to acknowledge that he's God. Honestly, it would only be confusing to walk around having demons proclaiming Jesus to be the Messiah. So he tells them to keep quiet. Now what's the application here? As Jesus heals the sick and he casts out demons with authority. We've got to ask some questions, right? Do we believe in sickness? Sure we do. Do we believe in demons? Well, you can't interpret the Bible literally and not do that, so yes, we do. So the question then becomes kind of a two-parter. Do we believe that Jesus has the power and the authority to heal people, and does he still do it? Well, for sure, Jesus has the power. So if we're asking the question, honestly, that question's probably pretty personal. We probably have some experience, and we say something like, well, my child was sick, and I prayed for them to be healed, and they died. Why didn't Jesus heal my child? My mother got cancer. Why, why did she get cancer and die? Doesn't Jesus heal people anymore? And listen, those are hard scenarios. Those are sad stories, I understand. And when we encounter people who have those stories, we need to weep with them. We need to shepherd them. We need to be with them. But we also need to remember, Jesus came with a bigger picture in mind. He was preaching about an eternal kingdom. His kingdom that will never end. And some people may be healed here on this earth. That's right. But those who aren't, as long as they profess faith in Jesus Christ, they will be healed. All Christ followers will be healed, right? Because in heaven, there's no sickness, no tears, there's no death. God is a God who heals. He does. That's who He is. And we can be involved. We can, we can support God's healing process because we can pray. But God's will is what we need to pray for for God's will to be done. And, and, and maybe you're like me, we can lay hands on people while we pray, like Jesus does in this passage. And I think it's so incredible. I, I personally have seen the results of miracles that God has done over praying with people and praying for people and laying my hands on them. But listen, the miracle had nothing to do with me laying my hands on the people, right? There's nothing magical in my touch. I've prayed for you, I guarantee you know this, I like to put a hand on your shoulder. I put my hand on your back. I put my hand on your head because we're not designed to be alone. And a lot of people, when they come and they share a prayer request, they feel alone. They feel lonely. 
and they're scared. And so that ministry of touch is really important for those people. But understand, when the elders lay hands on somebody, when I put my hand on your back, when I'm praying for you, I'm not healing you. God is the one who heals. I'm praying for you. And God is healing. And that's confusing for a lot of people because we're selfish. Because we're fallen people and we selfishly want people to be healed on this earth. We need to acknowledge that. That's part of being human and valuing relationships and not always having a kingdom view. While we're here, we're going to see as in a mirror dimly. One day, we'll see fully. And so we want to see miracles. We don't want the people we love to suffer. And so we look at a verse like John chapter 14 and verse 12, and we read it, and we want it to mean what we want it to mean. And there Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. And we read that and we misinterpret it. And we want it to mean that we can do miracles. And we can heal people because we love people. And we don't want to see them suffer. But that's not what that verse means. That doesn't mean we're supposed to be running around healing people. If it did, then why would Paul tell Timothy to drink a little wine for his bad stomach in 1 Timothy chapter 5? Because Paul could have just gone over and healed Timothy, right? Why did Paul leave a guy behind named Trophimus at Miletus in 2 Timothy chapter 4 when Trophimus was sick? Couldn't Paul just laid hands on him and healed him? Now it is true. Jesus gave his authority to others at times in the Bible so they could heal. But listen to me. That was not designed to be normative. God did through that through Paul before, but that's not normal. Those miracles occurred, like all miracles do in the Bible, for a specific time and purpose. And the miracles that surround Jesus always, always authenticate his person and his teaching and the authority that he had. God never works miracles for show. They always have purpose the miracles jesus did they always point to who he is and what he came to do remember in the gospels the miracle where jesus feeds the multitudes remember what he preaches then he's the bread of life it's why that miracle accompanies that teaching so folks could understand and apply the teaching jesus says he's the light of the world do you remember the miracle that he does opens the eyes of a man who was born blind so he can see that light. All the miracles in God's Word give symbolic lessons of real spiritual truth. Now, we'll still see miracles today, even miracles of healing on this planet. But we've got to know God is the one who does the healing. And he does it according to his will. And we need to recognize his authority and not misunderstand and misinterpret the purpose the miracles in the Bible. So there's three incredible examples of Jesus' authority from Luke chapter 4. What did we learn? And just as importantly, how will we respond? Are we going to continue going around questioning God's authority? Do we want to use Jesus for our own agenda? Boy, I'd like Jesus to preach me a good sermon. I'd sure like it if he'd cast out a demon heal somebody that I love, but I, 
I don't really want to submit to him. I don't really want to obey him with my whole heart. That's what the people in Nazareth wanted in the passage last week. They wanted Jesus to show up and do some cool miracles, make them great and blessed, but they didn't really want to obey him. So they rejected him. They tried to kill him. The demons get it right in this passage. But look carefully, so does Peter's mother-in-law. She experiences this miracle firsthand. She benefits from Jesus' authority, and then she has a decision to make. Just like the people in Nazareth last week, just like we do, honestly. If Jesus says jump, will we obey? Will we ask how high and then jump? But if Jesus asks too much of us, it gets uncomfortable. I mean, what if Jesus asks something, and that doesn't look like what we think Jesus would ask. That doesn't seem like the easiest path. Will we walk away? And will we reject him? Or will we be like Peter's mother-in-law and let Jesus heal us and then immediately submit and rise up and engage and begin serving God and obeying God out of awe and gratitude? Because that's the correct response to real authority that we see in Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for showing us how we are supposed to respond to your authority. God, we are in awe. As you send your son to be our savior and then he lives his life on this earth among us, with us, showing us these incredible examples God, help us to have the same response to your authority that the demons had. Help us to have that response that Peter's mother-in-law had where we desire more than anything to immediately obey your word and submit. And God, I pray we'd do that for your glory so we could be the kind of church that, that recognizes you give us gifts and you pour into us so that we can bring you glory and so that we can serve, so we can build up the body. God, help us to be that kind of church. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to study it today. Lord, as we leave, help us not to be just hearers. Help us to be doers. We love you. We ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen.